to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Podso One. Calvin Duncan has lived an awesome and blessed life. From humble beginnings in Linden, New Jersey, to basketball stardom at Oak Hill Academy and Virginia Commonwealth University, to becoming a youth minister and eventually the pastor and founder of Faith and Family Church in Richmond, Virginia, Calvin has positively impacted a lot of people. Join us to hear his inspirational story, why he walked away from a second round NBA draft pick, and his thoughts on our country's history and what we can do to get to a better place. Here's Calvin Duncan. Now, Daniel, tell me, I know you're ready to, let me shut up, because I know y'all want to start, so. No, it's all good. So, uh, I'll tell tell you a little bit about, Daniel, William Mary Grad, Calvin, lived overseas more than he's lived in the U.S. He is an American citizen, born in Texas. He considers himself from New Hampshire, but he's lived in Bolivia, Kuwait, went to high school in Cairo, Egypt. He's a very sharp guy. He's a thoughtful dude, and he's a really good guy, so I, I, I I think you'll enjoy uh, Daniel over the next 35, 40 minutes. Hold up. You, you was in Kuwait? Yes, sir. Yeah, I was in Kuwait during my middle school years. Wow. wow. So I actually have a good excuse for not being able to do a layup. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, so I, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, say, you know, welcome and, and thank you for joining us, uh, Calvin. I really, we really appreciate having you on. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Cool. So, Calvin, the, the reason we're together right now, I think, is because of your relationship with uh, Jerry and, and T. Bell. Yep. Tell, tell right. us about how you met uh, Jerry and T. Okay, we on? We're on, man. We're on, baby. Man, I tell you what, uh, it was T. Bell's 16th birthday, I believe. And Mrs. Bell, she said she wanted, uh, they used to, I guess I was their favorite player, and so she said, how can I get Calvin Duncan to come to T-Bell's birth, 16th birthday party? And so um, I, she called VCU and talked to our public director, and they worked it out, and they asked me, to, would I mind? I was like, you know, I don't know them, but since y'all got some free food, you know, <laughs> I don't mind. So anyway, um, it was cool. I, I can't remember. I don't think I met them at the time. And um, I, I'll never forget. It was on Patterson Avenue, I believe, the Pizza Hut on Patterson Avenue. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, that's what we had is um, 16, I was his 16th birthday party present. And. Uh, as a result, we had an opportunity to develop and nurture a relationship, and and we have been connected ever since. Yeah, Calvin, T is, uh, you can't see this very well, but there's about, I, I don't know, 10 pages of stuff he's been texting me today. Oh, really? He has a bunch oh. of questions he wants me to ask <laughs> you. Okay, well, look, go for it, man. Go for it. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm an open book, man. Well, hey, well, then let's start with uh, your your childhood. So you you were from uh, New Jersey originally, right? Correct. I um basically my story is is this. Uh, you know, I didn't come here with a silver spoon in my mouth. I I believe I'm a champion. You see the the hat I have. See, it's not just for Calvin. It's not just for a Christian, but it's for a champion. Um, I came out fighting, man. My mother 
unfortunately, um, I was born in South Boston, Virginia, Halifax County. Uh, my mother took sick while I was while she was pregnant, while I was in her stomach, and uh, went into a coma. And uh, they rushed her to the hospital, uh, and they C-sectioned me out, you know, to try to save both of us. Unfortunately, five days after my birth, um, she passed, and my father never walked through those doors. And um, so, at five days into this world, I was motherless and fatherless, and my mother's uh, sister, oldest sister, which is my aunt, was living in New Jersey. When they came down the funeral, uh, they did not want me to be adopted by anybody outside the family. So therefore, she made a decision and she adopted me. And I, I give her all the credit in the world because when she adopted me, she was 43 years old. And so it's like, you know, you know, for her to sacrifice her life, uh, to raise me, that's how it all started. And so in New Jersey, grew up in Linden, New Jersey, uh, St. George's Avenue, right on the Ave, uh, inner city situation, apartments. My aunt had a sixth grade education, but she had all the faith in the world and that faith carried me. And um, ultimately, um, unfortunately, she died my junior, going to my senior, junior, well, my junior year, she had a stroke and she died my, um, one of my senior year when I left Linden, New Jersey, went to Oak Hill Academy, and um, I was on my own. Uh, I really was on, yeah, I was just on my own, and uh, with a with a basketball, a dream, and a Social Security check that I received every month for one hundred and seventy-seven dollars. And I made a I made up in my mind that I was not going to be a statistic. I was not going to blame society or any system. Uh, that I feel that is against me. I wasn't looking for any excuses, but I was looking for all the right reasons to make it and to redeem, if you will, the death of my mother at five years, at five days old, and my aunt who raised me um, and died when I was uh, going, to my, going into my senior year in high school. And that's the story. That's just part of Cal Duncan's story. Mm. Your aunt sounds like an amazing woman. She was awesome. She was awesome. And she actually, I'm going to get ahead of myself. She taught me one of the best uh, lessons on racism. And in 1968, for those, you know, I'm like a historian. I love history. But in 1968, I was seven years old. I just turned seven, actually, April the 4th. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. As a result, there was riots all across the country like it is now. Um, it actually was worse then because they brought National Guards all over the place. And so um, I had two white friends that I used to play with that was in my class at school number four in New Jersey named Kim and Hollis. And I'll never forget Hollis because he was from Holland. And he used to wear these big clocks. Them clocks. <laughs> I don't know what they call them. Do they, do they call them clocks? Cl uh, clog. Uh, cl Clogs with a G. Come on, G. You went to uh, William and Mary? Come on. <laughs> he's got it he's got oh, it yeah don't expect too much of me but okay, yeah okay. we had a dutch person on the podcast and i'm pretty sure it's a clog or just a, those wooden shoes right yes and so i remember um one day wanting to go over the house and play with them in the neighborhood walk into the neighborhood and my um, aunt told me that i could not go and uh, she basically explained why and, and the thing i loved about it was she just said that right now there's rioting going on 
you know, uh, uh, blacks and white people. And she said, she, but here's what she said. She said, and she would have left it there because she's, you know, I don't want any white people to hurt you. And left it there as a child that would have been in my mind with an imprint in my mind, like why would white people want to hurt me? But what she said was that I'm concerned that you will get hurt by those bad ones. And she said, they're, they're good whites and they're bad whites. They're good blacks and they're bad blacks. They're people who are just wrong. And she said, I'm concerned about those who are wrong, those who don't love. I'm concerned about them. So she put the blacks and the whites in the same category dealing with hate. And then she also said there's some who love. And that made the world a difference. And I, I mean, I'm 59 years old. I remember that lesson to this day. But yet it seemed like people don't know how to uh, accept people for who they are. You know, I'm not asking you to um, eat dinner with me every day, but I can respect you as a human being. And I can look at you as an equal. And the, the only difference is that we got, it's like a house. It's like a house. You look at a house. You look at houses. They got different colors, but guess what? Most every house got a what? A living room. Most every house has a what? A kitchen. Most every house has mm. what? A bedroom. Most every house better have a bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's just a different cover. Just a different paint job. It's still a house. Yeah, your your aunt was a wise woman. She's basically making the point: it's about behavior and attitude, not about the color of skin. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely right. So, Calvin, growing up in Linden, tell us what it was like when you were, say, nine or ten years old. How, how did you spend your time? Um, when I was nine, ten years old, um, I loved playing football. At that time, I wanted to be a football player, a fireman, or a preacher, uh, because I remember seeing the preacher at the church, and I wanted, and I like like that, and I like fire trucks, you know, where I live in inner city, you always see sirens and every single day, you know, and so I just was uh, mesmerized, if you will, with um, the fire trucks. And I love football. At that time, I just love football. I wasn't even into basketball. And uh, the thing that happened to me also, dealing with what's going on uh, with police brutality and things of that nature, I don't believe that um, all police or policemen, law enforcement is wrong. I know that there's been some wrong done, particularly in the African-American community. But however, I have an amazing story. Back then, you guys are so young. You guys are rookies, see? But when <laughs> I was nine years old, we're talking about 1970, man. And they used to walk, the, they used to call it walk the beats. You know, they had beats and they would, the, the cops would walk the streets. And um, this one particular, not to get into a long story about it, but this one particular officer um, that walked my beat was a white gentleman. And you know what he did for me? Mm. He, he noticed that I didn't have a father. He noticed when he would walk by sometime, I'll be out. And it wasn't no backyard. I had the apartment and we had cars, we had gravel. And he would notice that I would have a football and I'd be throwing it up real high to myself, catch it, act like people are there. And, you know, he would notice that I play with my, I was playing uh, football by myself. Know what he would do? Mm. He would come by, speak to me, 
throw me, um, throw the ball, play catch with me for just a little bit. And um, I'll never forget him. I'll never forget him. And I, you know, obviously I was old. I don't remember his name. I mean, I, that was a long time ago. I was young. But one of the things he told me was he said, hey, you keep practicing. And uh, one day you can play football in the PAL league. So in Jersey, I know they got PLL all around. Uh, the Police Athletic League, that's what the PAL stands for. And um, he just said, hey, look, keep playing. And um, he said, I can see if I can get you some information. And so anyway, to make a long story short, I end up going out for the PAL football team. Uh, the only thing that was unfortunate was I lived um, Linden, New Jersey. I lived what they I would call up Linden, kind of, sort of. Um, and the practices were what you call down Linden in the boondocks near the Linden Airport off um, Route 1 and 9. And it was a long walk. And my aunt worked in the factories. And so basically when she come home, she's really tired because she's on her feet all day. And she took me to practice like maybe two or three times. And the rest of the time I had to walk. I really didn't know like a lot of people um, so it, was, it wasn't a safe walk for me to walk that far as a young person. At that time, actually, I was about maybe 11 years old. And um, so I, I eventually quit because um, the travel is too much. And as a result, I ended up playing basketball. Man, perfect segue. Uh, so and it, I know we don't have a huge amount of time here, so I, I want to talk about, you know, how – you're a uh, you're a legend at VCU, uh, and I think you're in the Hall of Fame, and your number's been retired. And, and, and T says you're the number one player in the history of VCU Rams basketball. That's and, my and, guy. And, and, and Calvin, I, I agree with him. <laughs> so, tell thank us about you your all. your basketball career. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for the kindness, and I always say this: anytime people talk about my accolades, I'm always mindful that it's a team sport. I always want to leave this message with so many people, and I know Paul and Daniel, you'll appreciate it. No one can be great by themselves. It had, you, you had to have a coach. If it's in academics, you had to have a teacher, a professor, um, somebody to really encourage you in the sport. And so when mm -hmm. I think of my success, I have to go all the way back so my seventh grade year, there was a guy by the name of Fred Galini, Italian guy up in Jersey. He was, he was fat. He was about 5'10", weighed about 300 pounds. And, but the guy could shoot the ball. And so he showed me the fundamentals of shooting the basketball, Fred Galini. And then um, Gabe Obester was my ninth grade uh, coach. And he was the best coach in the world to me. Um, he, he, he shared something with me as I was growing. One of the things he told me, he said, Calvin, he said, listen, I'm not going to just let you play with your back to the basket. I want you to face the basket because for some reason, if you don't grow, uh, you know, you'll be out of position. So he taught me about ball handling. He gave me these goggles where I can't see down and worked on my ball handling. He was very creative. He was innovative at that time. So I was playing center but I was also bringing the ball up. So, um, and then I think about Coach uh, Coach St. Anderson, 
uh, who actually, I just texted him the other day and wished him a happy Father's Day. I believe he is like 78 years old. And, um, and then from there, Jerry Embriaco, uh, from there to um, Skeeter Swift down at Oak Hill Academy, and then VCU, Tubby Smith, uh, uh, J.D. Barnett, uh, Kevin Eastman, uh, Dave Hobbs, Chip McCool, uh, Ron Jershner, and all of those individuals. So I'm going in every, but that was, that, that helped my success. But obviously, too, I had to work hard. And there was a guy named Sandy Pioni in New Jersey, a Jewish guy. We still friends to this day. And the reason why I am um, very, um, trying to be very particular with race and people, because I want to give you my whole experience that my experience was with different people. I understood different ethnic groups and different cultures, and I was able to appreciate it. But Sandy Pioni was like very instrumental in my whole basketball career. I love basketball. Dr. J was my favorite player. And um, man, I, I, I believed in it. I just loved it. I was a workaholic. I just loved to play and, you know, loved to be on the playgrounds back when I was playing at Fourth Ward, Dr. Martin Luther King um, Park. Man, playing the music. Oh, man, the people coming out watching us play. Man, you, you're talking about some of the best times in my life. Music going on, man. It was amazing. And I sometimes at my age now at 59, I look back and go, wow. Like the, like the song, All in the Family, those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> so, Calvin, you're, you're eight years older than me. So uh, my favorite player when I was a young kid was Dr. J, too. He, he could do amazing things. So we okay. have that in common. I like that, Paul. I like that's why you went to Virginia. You're a smart man. You're a smart man. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Hey, uh, what took you down to uh, Oak Hill Academy? Um, well, I was a junior in high school in Linden, New Jersey, and I was really struggling in my grades. I didn't like school. Um, actually, my junior year, my girlfriend, mother was a drug, was a drug dealer, and so they had a drug house, and I was hanging out with those that, that whole scene, that whole scene. And I played ball and the drug dealers liked me, so they protected me. And um, I didn't go to school much at all. And I needed a change. And so my teammate, Gordon Austin, um, there's a guy by the name of Har Howard Garfinkel back in the day, ran five-star basketball camp. Y'all can look him up. Howard Garfinkel. And he – and um, they was having a uh, practice uh, somewhere in Jersey. And um, my teammate had me come just to play because they needed somebody to scrimmage against. And uh, he saw me play and was like, wow, this guy could play. And to make a long story short, he recommended me to go to Oak Hill Academy. And it's amazing. And I am a man of faith. And I do believe that God has a way of giving us signs. So, I was with, it was me, Howard Garfinkel, and Gordon Austin, and, a, and another player, and, and um, who else was with us? Somebody else. And we were, they was taking us to eat after we played. We went to Hojo's. I don't know if y'all know about Hojo's down here in the South. Howard Johnson's. I, I back did. In, <laughs> back in the day up in Jersey, man. Hojo's, New York. What? You kidding me? That's, so we went to Hojo's. You know, Jersey is the, is the, is the, um, uh, has diners is like I think it's like the number one 
more diners in New Jersey than any place in the United States. So wow. we went there, and as we were walking, going in, uh, I saw this license plate, State of Virginia. And I just happened to say, oh, wow, Virginia, that's where I was born. Mr. Garfinkel said, that's it. <laughs> that's it. I want to get you to Oak Hill Academy. And that's how it all started. And then I um, went down to Oak Hill Academy um, on a visit and met one of the, y'all can look him up, his name is Harley Skeeter Swift. Used to play in the ABA, awesome coach, awesome guy. And his claim to fame was, no one sweeter than Skeeter. <laughs> and, and, and Skeeter's claim to fame is when he was playing the ABA um, down in Memphis, he hung out with Elvis one night. That's what he, that's what he says, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Skeeter was talking about how he would get in his car with in his pink Cadillac and the back of it says Skeeter. And he could always remind somebody, ain't no one sweeter than Skeeter. <laughs> so I, I went down to Oak Hill Academy and um man, it was uh it was really interesting because I had to take a placement test. Took a placement test, uh Man, fourth grade reading level. It's a private school. They was like, look, you know, uh, we don't think that you will be able to make it here. But Mr. and Mrs. Eisner, who were the president of the school, uh, they saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And they said, Calvin, we believe that you are capable. And actually, I remember the word they used. They said, you have the aptitude to do it. Because as we are looking at your transcripts, we noticed like that year, I missed like 61 days of school. I'm serious. I'm not making it up. I'm not, not embellishing those stories. It's true. And then the, the year before that, you missed like about 45 days, <laughs> you know. And so we believe that if you're in an environment, an, an environment where you focus on your academics and you need tutoring, you need some help, we believe you can do it. And I looked them right dead in their eyes. And I said, I said, I have nowhere to go. And I said, I'll do it. And so I ended up at Oak Hill Academy. And um, I had to repeat my 11th grade year. And um, the goal was for me was to pass my SATs. I had to get 750 to pass the SAT so I can go to Division One. And I was fortunate enough to do that. And Mr. and Mrs. Eisner, once again, Caucasian, Mr. Eisner, come from the hills of West Virginia. Country road, take me home, to the place I belong, West Virginia. That's Town's right. Mama. Country road. I hope I'm not messing up your ratings right now with this thing. But anyway. <laughs> it's all good, Calvin. But, it's all good. But, but um, Mr. Eisner come from the hills of West Virginia, and Mrs. Eisner came from a place called Wingate. It looks like Wingate, but it's Wingate. That's how they pronounce it, uh, North Carolina, about 45, 50 miles outside of Charlotte. And I'm going to tell you what. They were very intelligent, and they believed in me, and they saw something. One thing they noticed about me, they said, you got a great memory. And the reason why that worked, because, because I didn't read well, I had to remember stuff. So I just remember a lot of things because I will focus on what people say. 
And they said, well, that same focus, you got to do in school, and the rest is history. 61 and 1 at Oak Hill Academy. Uh, you know, I was the top 50 in the nation uh, going to my senior year and end up at VCU. was recruited by University of Maryland, uh, Purdue. I visited University of Maryland, Purdue, Minnesota, but I decided to come to VCU because um, I wanted to be close to the Eisners, and um, Tubby Smith got me there as well. Hey, so Calvin, uh, you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago uh, about you having a scoring record when you were at Oak Hill Academy. You scored 61 points in a game. And for people uh, in their mid-40s to, uh, I don't know, 70s, remember, there was no three-point line in high school. The three-point line didn't get introduced until, I think, 1987, 1988. Yes, sir. And, and so you would drop 61 points in a game with no three-point line. And it took 27 years before Brandon Jennings, with a three-point line, ended up breaking your single-game scoring record. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, Paul, you did your research, man. Come on. You know, <laughs> uh, appreciate it. Yes, I was um, – yeah, 61 points without three-point line. Uh, uh, at 20 – at 20 at halftime and then exploded for 41 in the second half. And when I look back on it still, I think, wow, because – you know, high school is only eight minute quarters. Right. You know, so I'm like, wow. So, you know, you know, when you're doing something, you don't think about it. When you get older, you're like, oh, wow. That was, that was almost uh, two points a minute. Yeah. yeah. You, you dropped 41 in 16 minutes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Without a three point line. Yes. Wow. yes. <laughs> yeah. But uh, once again, you know, um, you know, my teammates gave me a ball, and my coach believed in me. So it was it was an interesting game, and I was fortunate to be placed in that position. Cool. Hey, so you ended up uh, going to VCU. Did you play under Smith longer or Barnett longer? Okay, well, actually, Tubby Smith was a, was um, one of the assistants. <clears throat> I got you. But I, yeah, but J.D. Barnett, I played for, yeah, four years. J.D. Barnett was the head coach. Tubby was an assistant along with Kevin Eastman. Um, and – Dave Hobbs, yes, four years there and had a great experience. I can say this, man, and this may segue into uh, the next topic, um, is that Richmond, Virginia has been good to me. Um, I've been very fortunate to meet some fabulous people, and I have no complaints whatsoever. Obviously, there are things that, you know, need to be changed or you know, um, we could do better by working with, these, with, with each other. But Richmond has just been a place where I'm able to settle with my family. And my children went to school here and was educated. Actually, my daughter was educated. My daughter, Chelsea, my oldest daughter, I think I told you, got her master's at UVA. Uh, and my son got his degree at Virginia Tech. And my daughter, who just graduated this year, graduated from Liberty University. So I've, I've been blessed. I've been fortunate, met some great people. And, you know, I'm blessed. So, uh, Calvin, tell us about uh, you were drafted, and your Wikipedia page talks about the Bulls and the Cavaliers. Who actually drafted you? So the deal is uh, Jerry Krause, which if you saw the last dance, he was a general manager. A lot of times they did what they do, they work out a deal where they have another team pick you so that way <coughs> – you won't get lost with them. Um, you, they won't miss out the opportunity if another team 
select you and don't want to trade. So um, I was drafted, Charles Oakley and I, Charles was at Virginia Union University. Charles Oakley and I was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers, traded that day to the Chicago Bulls. That's how they work. That's how they do it. For Enos mm-hmm. Watley and Keith Lee. And yeah, they, yeah man, those names ring a bell, man. Those bring back the days. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Did, and so I want you to be here. So I signed the three year deal with the Chicago Bulls. And they and, uh, did you ever play Charles at VUU? Oh, yeah, that's my boy. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, well, see, one thing about um, Virginia, one thing about it, you know, it's so different now, but Virginia Union and VCU guys play all the time because, you know, Virginia Union's only across the street. Right. When I say cross the street, you know what I mean? Cross Broad Street, go down a little bit. I mean, it's only like, what, two miles away? Yeah, yeah. it's not far at all, yeah. Yeah, so we played all the time. We had great relationships, great games at West Franklin Street Gymnasium and also at Virginia Union. So, yes, to this day, me and Charles are cool. So, so Calvin, you signed that three-year deal, and, uh, and that was potentially worth a lot of money, right? And, and, uh, but then you, you walked away to go uh, do something else. And I'm really curious about how you came to that decision. I know you're a man of faith, so do you want to tell us what you did instead? Absolutely. I believe that I had an epiphany. I believe that um, some way my mind went down in the annals of time and uh, just realized how thankful and blessed I am and how my journey from my mother's womb to where I was at that time. Um, I just had a desire that as a Christian, I wanted to do what the Bible says in Matthew 5, 16, which says, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In other words, I wanted to demonstrate my faith by the way I live, not just by talking about it, not by beating somebody over the head with the Bible, not by acting like I'm better than anybody, but to walk the walk and to be a light and to be the salt that preserves the truth of God's word. As a result, I, at that particular time in my life, um, the stuff that I came out of, what I was doing back in the day in Jersey and things like that with the drug people, um, I still had a lot of stuff in me that I felt I might have gotten caught up in um, that NBA lifestyle and um, could have potentially spiraled my way down to where I came out of, and I was concerned about that. So once again, that was my decision. That was my convictions. I have no regret. However, if there's someone listening in that would say, does that mean that you, if you are a Christian or a person of faith, you can't play professional sports? No, I'm not saying that. You have to make your own decisions. But I felt for Calvin Anthony Duncan, that was the best thing I could do at the time. And people thought I was crazy. What mm. in the world is wrong with that boy? I mean, you were like, what? <laughs> you were 25 years old and you were turning down like potentially millions of dollars? Like, uh, Yeah, 23 going on 25. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, 23 going on 25. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's, I mean, I, I understand why people would call you crazy. But uh, so, so instead you went to, uh, to, to play for Athletes in Action. So you still were playing, uh, yes. right? Yes, yes, I did that and just basically um, was um, looking to grow in my faith and, you know, do some mission work and things of that nature. And um, Athletes in Action, one of, my, one of the 
one of my best friends to this day is a guy by the name of Lorenzo Romar. Lorenzo Romar played in the NBA, also was a head coach at uh, University of Washington, um, and he's now at Pepperdine University. He was also head coach at St. Louis University, and uh, I can't remember the other one uh, he was at. But anyway, um, Lorenzo is is just like my – he's my guy. He's, he was amazing and was like a mentor to me, and I love him dearly to this day. Uh, yep. Wow. So athletes in action, you, you guys would go travel around the country – spread the word, uh, but you'd also uh, do fundraising? I mean, how did it work? What, what did Athletes in Action actually try to accomplish at every stop? Well, Athletes, athletes in Action, um, guided by Dr. Bill Bright, um, basically was to share the gospel and to lead, give people an opportunity, an invitation to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and also then uh, we do missions and uh, we'll go different places and just like help relief type of thing, and then also share the gospel. So that was the goal of it. We didn't really necessarily raise money. Uh, we would have had to be supported. People would um, support us, and also they had organizations that would pay us salaries, the top players. And now, unfortunately, I was um, had an opportunity to be one of those that was um, considered a top player. Right on. Uh, Calvin, t tell you're, you've been a pastor for a long time now. Uh, and I think most of that time, if not all that time, has been in Richmond, right, as a pastor? Yes, yes. I was a youth pastor in 1997 at Richmond Christian Center. And then in um, 2004, I decided, I believe, to uh, I, I decided to start a church called Faith and Family Church on, at 7900 Wamsley Boulevard, where all roads lead. <laughs> <laughs> and uh the name of the church is faith and family church but we're living by faith and building godly families and our ultimate goal is uh building consummate balanced people doing good works in the community and the reason why that's important and i'll give you an extra couple of minutes because i know you know we're trying to make something happen but um the reason why our mission statement is important to me and you know I would hope no one would be offended by it, but maybe they could be challenged by it. I don't believe in a Christian country club because what I mean by that is I feel that a lot of times, a lot of churches is to me is nothing but a country club, bless their hearts. Um, you know, country clubs is like, you gotta be a member. A country club is exclusive. A country club you have to know somebody that's going to sponsor you so you can get in. And it's like y'all got your own little language, your own little vernacular, your own little way of doing things. And it's not inviting. And I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is invited to every single person on this earth. And so that's why I said our mission statement is building consummate balance, people doing good works. Where? In the community. But that's when you got to take the gospel outside. So it's, I look at it this way. It's like we are vehicles. Every vehicle needs some gas. The church is your gas station. You go and get your inspiration. You go and get the word of God. You go and get some instructions. And then that's, that, that's your high octane. And now you're filled up. And as a vehicle, now you travel 
and then you touch somebody's life. And so um, I believe in that. I believe in a, a church that is doing something. I believe in a church that is helping the poor. I believe in a church that is clothing the naked. I believe in a church that is visiting those that are sick. I believe in a church that goes and visit people at prison. So that's what we do at Faith and Family Church. We are those who do the gospel, not just talk about it. That that sounds awesome, Calvin. I, I'm I don't know you that well. We met a long time ago, but uh, I, I that gives me pride in uh, humanity. Gives me pride about you and your story. Uh, so it, I know you got to run here in a, in, a, in a minute. If you if we could close with your thoughts about what's going on in this country, uh, given the pandemic and given uh, the the senseless murder of George Floyd. Okay. Um, yeah. First of all, the pandemic. <clears throat> the pandemic is outside of our power. In other words, that disease, the virus, the bacteria, um, it's not like we could just say, okay, let's stop this. Let's, let's get together and figure out how we can stop it outside of practicing social distancing, things of that nature. It's something that is uh, in the air or is in, it could be airborne, um, but it's a disease. The disease that I want to talk about is disease of racism. The disease that I want to talk about is the fact that um, nothing will ever change. The world will never get better if the people don't change. If the people, we as Americans, if we're not willing to sit down and have the hard conversations, um, uncomfortable conversations, uh, we will never advance as a country to be as great as we should be. Now, I'm not I'm not a political dude, but I can make statements. And I and I hear President Trump, uh, the 45th president of the United States, say, you know, let's make America great again. Well, for some black people, it, it never was great. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not against the slogan, so just be with me for a moment, okay? Um, but for some African Americans, a lot of them, it, it never was great. Uh, for them. Now, somebody out there going, well, go back to Africa. Well, you know what? You brought us here. So <laughs> going back to Africa is not the not the solution. And, and I hope that I'm not being too abrasive. No, you're just, fine. Kyle. No, no. Just, you're good. Just giving it, giving it, you know, like it is. Um, my thing, my, my thing is the way we can make America great. But for some who want to say again, is that we give everybody equal opportunity. The way we make America great is to have a level playing field. The way we can make America great, and hear me when I say this to you, to acknowledge your mistakes. I'm not asking Daniel and Paul every time we talk, oh, I'm so sorry what my forefathers did. Oh, I'm so I'm not talking about that. I'm saying acknowledge the fact that when you, not you guys individually, but when a group of people look at African-Americans and try to figure out why they have all these problems, well, let's go to history. Let's go to the origin of things. 1619, out there where uh, Daniel went to school down there in Williamsburg, Yorktown. Mm-hmm. You know, when, the, when people who were free people who had their own 
house and everything else was brought here as slaves. As a result, we know about the trade slaves that um, happened all throughout the country and it put us at a disadvantage. So for, for, for 250 years, 250, yeah, no, uh, yep, 250 years, white people had free labor, period. Free labor. We built this country, but yet, you know what? You have a lot of people say black people are lazy. You know, we built this country under duress. Our, you know, our, our fathers, our males were just taught to breed, not to be fathers. They, they had no type of um, dignity because the master would come at any time and do whatever he wanted to do with his wife and children. So there's so much that has happened and then once we were freed, President Abraham Lincoln in January the 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed and issued. Um, well, it took for all the slaves to find out that information. You know, when people talk about Juneteenth, June the 19th, which, is, um, which was in Galveston, Texas, was the last group of slaves that heard that they were free. Listen to this. 18 months later, was it 18 months later? Uh, two, yeah. Oh, I don't know. About a year and a half later, um, they found out that they were uh, free. And um, that's why they celebrate um, they call it Juneteenth, June the 19th. But now you'll have, you know, you know, Caucasians. Why, why are we celebrating this now? They want holidays. What you talking about? So if you want to deal with history, let's deal with history. You know, people say, well, you know, why do you got to have a black, uh, you know, what do you call it, a, a black history month on February? What about a white history month? You know, what, what about white history? Or then somebody in the Hispanics want a month. Anybody want a month? Well, let me share with you why. Y'all, the Caucasians or the people in power is the one who ignored our history. You ignored, <laughs> you ignored our contribution in, in this land. You ignored those who, who were inventors. You ignored those who were educators. You act like we didn't exist. And then when, when I was growing up, I remember a history book that showed athletes, Jackie Robinson, first black, Joe, Joe Lewis, a credit to his race. That's what they used to say about him. Um, Muhammad Ali was villainized because he bucked the system. Uh, uh, they made Malcolm X look like a, just a, a total hater, which that wasn't the case. I know he said some things that were rough, but ultimately he was trying to empower black people. Martin Luther King Jr. And then he'll, they'll have entertainers. So the, your history showed America that we were nothing but entertainers or athletes. And that's how we could be successful. And you completely 
ignored all the things and accomplishments we did. So as a result, if I'm a historian, I'm trying to figure out what is it that we did that made a contribution. I know about the time, I'm just, don't worry about it. Um, and so now what I'm gonna do is say, you know what? Let's, I'm just using, for example, I'm just gonna use y'all names. You know, Paul, Paul Gilliam, right? Gilman, yeah. Gilman, sorry. Paul Gilman um, invented the podcast. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know but, but it's not in the history books. They ignored that. So I'm going to write about Paul Gilman, okay? Um, Daniel invented the, the buttons and the electronics for the podcast. So I'm going to write Daniel. What's your last name, Daniel? Lance. Dan, Daniel Lance, DL. You know, we, we got, so that's how black history came about because I had to write about our experience because you ignored us. So now when we say we want black history month, that's a problem because now people say, why, what about white history? Well, I'm not coming against white history. What I'm saying and proposing to everybody, because I'm always looking to, I'm always looking to bring people together. Here's what I'm saying. If you want to rewrite history, if you will, or re revive history, let's just do American history. So let's put this, just include all the stories. Mm, yep. I'm not, I'm not trying to erase white history. You know, I mm. understand, I understand whatever is taking place, but don't exclude us. And then when we try to get in the game, then you go, well, why y'all got to have a Black History Month? And to me, it's hypocritical. And it's almost like you're looking at us like we're doing something wrong, but really you're the one who did something wrong, but you don't want to admit it. And so that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's like when you communicate and talking to people, the way you can only move forward is you have to admit where you are. And I know I had some friends, dear friends of mine, who were um, like, you know, had to go to Alcohol Anonymous, Alcohol Anonymous. And one of the things I remember doing was I wanted to support one of my friends one time. So he asked me to go to a meeting with him. And I went to a meeting with him. And as they go in the meeting, I don't know how they do it now, they get sit around in a circle and they introduce themselves. And they'll say, um, they'll say, hi, my name is uh, blah, blah, and I'm an alcoholic. And they say the first step, I think it's a 12-step program, the first step in Alcohol Anonymous is admitting that you are an alcoholic. In order for you to be sober and to recover, I don't think I'm saying is America, admit that you was wrong and let's move forward. Don't make excuses, just admit that you was wrong. It, was, it wasn't a good look for America, period. Right, but let's be great together. But anyway, I yeah. hope that wasn't too much. No, that's, that's great, Calvin. Uh, yeah, I, I think the first step in uh, our country getting to a better place, our world getting to a better place. But let's stay specific to this country. I, I think we're slowly but surely, since George Floyd's murder happened, the majority is starting to admit that we have a problem. I, I sense that. I, I hear it. I'm not sure what you're uh, seeing and hearing, but I, I think we're moving in the right direction. But, I, but you're right. Collectively, we have not said that uh, as a country, and we need to get to a place where we can say that and mean it. 
Now, what, so what I want to say is this. I already texted the person and said that, you know, I could just join them at, you know, 8 o'clock. Um, here's what I want to say, and I appreciate you saying that, Paul. Um, see, right now I have a major concern, and I'm going to tell you what my major concern is. My major concern is that because we've had some more events that have happened, unfortunately, um, dealing with police brutality and, you know, it's like, for example, the, the young man who got shot, I'm going to go to Joy Floyd for a minute, but the young man who got shot down in Atlanta, Rayshawn Brooks, I believe. Yep. Um, that's a tough one. And I'm going to tell you why it's a tough one. Because I teach my, I teach all of my children, my nephew, nephews, uh, those in the, in the church, those at the community center, when you are confronted by police officers, comply first. And if there's something that went wrong or they treated you wrong, they hit you, whatever, complain second. Don't complain first. Because if you complain first, you may not even have an opportunity to comply. <laughs> Period the way the record shows. Now, once again, I wanna make this very clear. All police officers are not bad. The majority of the police officers, law enforcement are great. I got officers, I got captains at my church. I, I love, um, state trooper, by the way, I love them. And it's that, it's that 1%, if that's what they say, 1%, 2%, whatever it is that, that just jacks everything up. But listen to what I'm saying. That young man, It would have been nice if he would have just complied. But now here's the issue. He seemed like he was intoxicated. And so now here's what I want to say to y'all. And I'm not going to put y'all in front street, but I would have to say Paul and Daniel, myself, at, you know, back in the day and all that. I believe we all maybe indulged in something, whether it was a drink, whether it was a drug, that caused us to not make the right decision. I believe everybody almost on this earth, not everybody, but all could say that, that it influenced their decisions. So it doesn't make it right. But then also I think that dealing with skill is that if the officer was able, it was two of them, but if they was able to see that the guy was falling asleep in his car, either he, either this brother then did a double shift and he just tired, <laughs> or he's drunk or something's going on. Mm. So his judgment is not going to be where it needs to be. Now, once again, I'm not, I can't, I know there's a fine line, so I'm not making excuses, but I'm just thinking about how having the intangibles, having that sixth sense to know he's, something's wrong. Or I guess they was close enough. Oh, no. They, so, so he took the breath test, right? Um, the, 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 um, the, the sober test. Y'all knew that, right? Yeah. You know, so that right there told him that he was intoxicated. Now, I believe that the humanity piece should be, I'm not saying you still can't arrest a person. I don't know. I don't know if you leave him in a car, leave him on the side, and just say you cannot move this car, put your car in front of it, and then say call somebody at your house because you're not able to drive. You're not in a good condition. 
to me, that would have been awesome from a humanity point of view um, to just know how to police in that situation. But at that time, there was no, there was no altercation with violence, or anything going on. It wasn't until they went to cuff him, which they wasn't really overly aggressive, that then he kicked in and he just went in survival mode. Now, unfortunately, I don't know if y'all know his story, um, but the situation was he was he was in jail before. And um, I don't know if y'all knew that he was on um, probation and they had a had a um, interview with him of him talking about the system and how it could get be better. Are y'all familiar with that? No, no. Okay, so here's what happened. So they showed him this is he's 27 years old. He looked a little older, but um, and I don't know if that. I don't know if that video was this year or last year, but here's the issue. He was on probation and probably in his mind, if he goes down with, he had four children, if he goes down to the police precinct to go to jail, you know, for the night that they're going to look at this and maybe he violated his parole. And as a result, maybe he has to do some more time. And in his mind, poor judgment. I can't do time. Let me get out of here. And he's running. All right, now. But then, you know, uh, you know, I know he turned to did a little taser thing. But, you know, that was um, uh, unfortunate. You know, they shot him and he died. Uh, but here's the reason why I brought that up. Because, you know, we had the George Floyd situation. I'm concerned that as we are protesting, I'm not into rioting. There's a difference, okay? But as we're protesting, hopefully looking for some policies to be changed, um, I can tell you right now, I get tired of seeing it almost every day on the news. Talk show. Every, I mean, everything. It's like we're inundated by it. My concern is that we become numb to it. Yep. And then we kind of go back to normal. And I'm hoping that we could recognize the unfortunate death of George Floyd because there's I mean, I, I look at it two different situations. That was this. That was crazy. Now, but also, and, and forgive me the way I say it, but also those knuckleheads down in um, Georgia who shot the boy, Ahmaud Arbery, who was just jogging down the street because they claim that he, you know, they thought he was um, stealing. Um, you know, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Down in Atlanta? Yep. You know, the New Brunch, whatever it was, um, down in Georgia. And, I mean, stand your ground rule, <laughs> Trayvon Martin. But why does it always seem like it's black people getting shot by white people? You know, so it's like at some point in time, if you're my brother or if you believe in humanity, and even though, like I say, you don't got to eat with me every single day, but you have to be able to say something wrong with that. Something's wrong when that, that knucklehead um, years ago who shot nine people in the church 
where um, they invited you. Know, he came in the church at a Bible study. He was the only white kid there, white person there. They was praying. I mean, I mean, they let him stay in there, treated him with respect. And then when they go to pray, he pulls out a gun and kill all of them. And then when he finally get caught, explain this to me and tell me you wouldn't be upset. Now, that, that part was horrible. But then they, when they finally caught the boy, and I called him a boy, he said he was hungry. And they took, the police officers took him to Burger King. Y'all know, know about that, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. Okay, he's a, I mean, he done killed nine people and then you will have an African-American that don't even have a gun on him and he getting shot. You know, yeah. uh, you got one who, who's on video um, choking him, on, your knees on his neck. You got the Garner situation, the guy saying, I can't breathe and choke. You got all of that. You got the Rodney King situation. And it's like, when are the people going to say enough is enough? It's about humanity. And I hope, brothers, and I believe I would, if the, let's say if the, if the United States was a majority African-Americans and we enslaved you guys and it was the shoes on the other foot, I would hope that in my heart, I would say, if you guys were dealing with the same stuff we're dealing with, just reverse it that I would say, you know what, enough, enough. And that's what I'm looking for, to see when people are finally going to say enough is enough. But then I'll give you this, and I'll, um, um, because I hope I'm not, you know, you know, there's probably somebody on the line saying, man, that black guy is angry. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the black guy is very thoughtful, and he feels a certain way. Yeah, It's you a know, righteous anger. <laughs> you know, but what I want to say is that, for all of us, man, if we understand that the human race came from one blood, that we are really better together. And this is what I want. This is why I'm concerned about a lot of this stuff on television and how the news sometimes depicts certain things. So now let's say for those Caucasian brothers and sisters who are, see, to me, it's about economics. It's about economics and about power. That's really what it's really about. Now, you got those who are, from an economic point of view, low-income people as well. Here's what all this mess does. It makes them think, now, if you give the Blacks all of this, what about us? And then they start thinking we're taking stuff from them. And then that becomes a problem because they become angry. And it's like, no, we're not trying to take anything from you guys. Only thing we're saying is that can we have an equal opportunity to go for the same job that you're going for? And to me, we can make America better. And here's the sad part. We got enough money in this country. Here's the sad part, particularly billionaires. We got enough billionaires in the United States of America. Listen to this. I don't know if you, um, someone did the numbers. They said, we got enough billionaires in the United States of America that if they wanted to 
help the whole world. There'll be not one person that will go homeless and hungry. But people are so selfish. And they, and it's like, and I'm gonna tell you right now, we're educating. And um, see, also, not only do I have a church, I have a, a community center called Faith and Family Center. And the reason why that's important, because if somebody's not into the religious thing, if, if, as they would say, you know, it, I'm about helping people. And one of the things that we're trying to educate, particularly and in, in understand my specific in race, particularly African-American athletes, is that, bruh, you don't need nine cars. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't need nine cars, man. Listen, man, okay, I know you're poor. I know you never had anything. You know, okay, get your three, get your four cars, get your, you know, get your car for the family, get your speed, you know, a little uh, fast car, get your motorcycle. But listen, learn how to invest in your community, learn how to save your money, learn how to get with other people and collaborate. So that way you can learn there's a difference between um, being rich and, 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 and having wealth. You know, because you could be rich for a period of time, but once that window is up, then what are you going to do? And but see, because of a lack of education, a lack of knowledge, the scripture says my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. You know, the time we have an opportunity, we offer to something else. And my thing is empower your own people, not being exclusive. But it's like that's it. That is an issue. And a lot has to do with education in that area. And um, and then I guess I'll hush up with this because um, you guys won't notice. You know, I'm the first person in my family in 1980, I went back to school in 86, they got a degree. Now, on one end, it's an accomplishment. But on the other end, that is a sad commentary. That's a sad commentary. And if it wasn't for other people helping me out, I would have been in that same trade when, I would have got caught up in that same trade when, 1986? And then you look at families who, I guess, I don't know from, I mean, is if I'm not mistaken, this will probably make you feel good, Daniel. Isn't Virginia the old, I mean, isn't William and Mary the oldest? Um, institution um, in state of Virginia? It's uh, in Virginia, yeah. It's, it's actually the second oldest in the whole country. The only one older is Harvard. Okay. But it is the oldest in the state of Virginia, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. So now, what year was it established? 1693. So think about it. 1693. It was 1619 the slaves came. Most likely, we probably built that university as well. Absolutely. <laughs> So, uh, and, and so can you imagine the fact that it was against the law for black people to read? So let's think about how far back now, once again, I'm not saying, uh, Paul, Daniel, give me a donation today. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that, <laughs> but what I'm saying is sometimes if we look back and see what history did to a group of people, maybe you can understand maybe when a, a, a portion of them act like fools because they're just not educated 
and some of them just don't believe that it can ever happen to them. So it's like every day they just live as if they're going to die tomorrow. You know, not understand a legacy, but because you're educated and you have an understanding, then you pass it to your children, to your children's children, and it just keeps going and it perpetuates to the point where now you, everybody, your family, you expect it to do this. And sometimes when you have high expectations, see, the issue is when you set low standards, for example, one of the worst things in, oh, I, I know I'm probably going off. I'm not. I mean, I'm just trying to give some history. But I remember one time they was going to, what was it called? Standard of SOLs, Standard, Standard of Learning. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I remember they was going to, because in the inner city, more than the county, they were going to lower the standards or the score um, that you have to get uh, so that way they can, the schools could continue to be accredited and things of that nature. And I'm not sure exactly what they did, but I was one along with others who said, no, 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 don't lower the scores. Because if you lower the scores, know what you're doing? You're lowering the standards. You're only hurting them. You got to teach them how to reach high, how to go hard, because that's the only way you're going to get better. So it's so much um, systemic stuff that has taken place over the years. And then down here in the South, you got the Jim Crow thing going on. And it, it's just a lot. Now that's gone. And now we at this place. And I just want to say, Calvin Anthony Duncan is about peace, love, happiness, about coming together, you know, and um, I want to commend you guys for allowing me to share my heart. Um, and even as you hear me speak, I'm not speaking in a critical way like I hate. Listen, how, okay, y'all, I didn't tell you this part. How can I hate white people when Mr. and Mrs. Eisen, when my aunt died, they were my surrogate parents for two years and they wanted to adopt me, but they just had a kid go to the paperwork and they're white. So, you know, if there's anybody who understands this race, racial tension, racial relations, it's Calvin Anthony Duncan. It's, if anybody can talk about this stuff, it's me. And uh, I'm not saying I'm an expert at it, but I believe that I have some life experiences that can enlighten both sides to say at the end of the day, you got a basketball team, you got Virginia Commonwealth University, and you got Rolando Lamb from Portsmouth, Virginia. You got Mike Slagle from Bayshore, New York, white guy, Mike. You got Greg Shopshire from, from Big Texas, where they do it big. You got um, Fred Brown from the Bronx, New York, Boogie Down Bronx. You got Randy Calker from Trenton, New Jersey, the hood. You got Donnie Franco, who grew up in Jersey, Linden with me. You got all these different players. Michael Brown from Hopewell. From different regions, different cultures, religion. And it's amazing that we can get on a basketball court 
and don't care about any of that. We only focus in on the Rams winning the basketball game. That's what it's all about. And unfortunately, our politicians have focused more on their agendas than the country, you know, and, and, and we need to work together. And then I got to give you this, guys. You know, did y'all understand what I meant about the, that example about the team? Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm saying that we could have – it's all right to have differences. And I want to share this with y'all, Paul and, uh, and Daniel and those that are listening. I'm going to help y'all out. I'm going to help y'all out. Y'all going to appreciate <laughs> this. Y'all going to love this one. <laughs> Do me a favor. Don't make this statement anymore. I don't see color. We all human. Listen, I know people said that in ignorance. I know they mean well. I know what they're trying to say. But here's what I want to say to you. No, I want you to see color. No, see my color. I see your color. I see other people's color. Why? Because I need to learn to appreciate your color. I need to learn how to appreciate your culture. I may not understand it all, but I should not want to dilute you to see everybody like this. No, we're different in those areas. But guess what? When we cut, when we get cut, guess what? We all bleed red. And so learn how to appreciate other people's culture. Don't dilute, don't take away, I don't, don't take away my blackness. Don't, don't try to make me like you. I don't want to be like you. I want to be who I'm created to be. I want you to be who you're created to be. You know, I'm a brother. Listen, growing up in London, New Jersey, I'm a brother who was one of the only brothers in the hood who liked Jimmy Hendrix. Come on, somebody. <laughs> I don't know. Jimmy you know who Jimmy Hendrix is? Oh, Jimmy yeah. Hendrix. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jimmy, hold up. Daniel, I'll hang up this phone if you'll tell me. <laughs> no, no, I thought you said Jimmy Daniels. <laughs> oh, I no, like hearing no. my own name. <laughs> no, Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. Jimmy Hendrix, man. Um, they was like, man, Cal. They was like, Cal deep. Cal like rock and roll, man. Mm. You know, but they, you know I, I like rock. I, but I like Jimmy. I like rap. I like uh, uh, Funkadelic, Rhythm and Blues, and all that stuff. But anyway, um, but my point is this. Let's appreciate one another. I don't try to make me you and I'm not going to try to make you me. And that's the beauty of life. Why did you think what, if that was the case, God would have created everything green. <laughs> <laughs> everything would have been green. That's it. The flowers are green. The trees are green. The fruit is green. I mean, the cows are green. <laughs> the dogs are green. Everything's green. God has given us colors so we can appreciate it. each other. Enjoy the colors, but let's work together. So anyway, I, 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 I just want to say y'all, thank y'all for the platform. Um, allow me to share. Calvin, we uh, really appreciate you coming on. So here's the deal, man. We're doing this virtually. I, I don't like doing it virtually. Daniel doesn't like doing it virtually. We're going to do this again. We're going to learn more about your story. We'll do it in person. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate you coming on tonight. It was an honor to have you on. Your story is amazing. Uh, through, through struggle, amazing things can happen, and you are living proof of that. Yeah. Thank you so much. So what are y'all doing?
you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.